Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand that you remember as a young girl making an impact on you? Oh, that's easy. Lego. I love Lego. I still love Lego. It's still the brand that I think is a brand for the ages. Um, I have a huge amount of admiration for it in terms of how it's consistently innovated and pushed sort of creativity forwards for children. I think it's extraordinary. Your kids all play with Lego? They do, particularly my youngest. And we went to Legoland for the first time this summer and we went for the children, obviously. But it was it was really um, energizing and it was so incredible to see how they continue to stretch and grow that brand. I came away thinking, gosh, that would be an amazing brand to work on. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Mickey Onveral, the CEO of Bonobos, the men's e-commerce-driven clothing brand founded in 2007 and purchased by Walmart in 2017. Bonobos is the largest U.S. clothing brand ever built on the web. Impressive. Also impressive is the insight that drove the founders to create the brand. They could not find pants that really fit them well. My guest, Mickey, is one of those rare cases. She has been a CMO and is now a CEO. Mickey is a graduate of Cambridge University with a degree in modern and medieval languages. We'll talk a bit about that. Mickey has worked with an assortment of upstarts and established companies. L'Oreal, Kellogg's, eBay, Talkbox, Nalvonage, and Trulia. Seems like a perfect background for the leader of a Walmart subsidiary. This is my conversation with CEO and mother of three children, Mickey Onveral. Mickey, welcome to the CMO Podcast. Do you remember the last time I interviewed you? I'm ashamed to admit that no. I feel like it was at some really fabulous in-person marketing conference, but I don't remember which one. Well, that's okay. It was at a very fancy conference. It was in Chicago. It was a CNBC conference. Oh, yes. And I interviewed you on behalf of CNBC about big companies and small companies. We also had someone yes. from RX Bar there, which now is Now I remember exactly. Yep. So that's what we talked about. So I'd love to kind of stay on that for a minute, this big company, small company theme to start off our podcast. You've now been owned by Walmart for four years, and we talked about that when we did the CNBC event before COVID. I'd love to hear you reflect about 
after these four years, what's the biggest cultural lesson you have learned from them? And vice versa, what have they learned from you? It's a great question. I think it's probably a little bit colored by the pandemic, to Mm. be honest with you, because I think that the pandemic brought into such sharp relief so many kind of cultural issues, whether it was about um, how you look after people in our stores when you open and close them during a pandemic, whether it was everything that happened in the summer of 2020 around Black Lives Matter and how you communicate around that. So I think that because of the fact that we've gone through the pandemic together, if you like, Walmart and Bonobos, we've probably had even more sort of accelerated learnings about how you act as a large corporation, as well as how you act when you're a smaller entity like ourselves. I think because we are smaller, we were able to hear very clearly from the front lines very early on through direct conversations around what our frontline workers in the stores were feeling. So I remember very early in March of, was that 2020 now? March of 2020, you know, my team teams in stores were already feeling extremely anxious and nervous about closing. And I think Walmart hadn't heard that kind of feedback um, already. But And I remember being in a conversation and talking to the leaders at Walmart about closing our doors. And there was a question of, well, do you know that your team are uncomfortable? And I said, absolutely, I know. They call me. And not even metaphorically do they call me. They literally call me and call me on my cell phone. So I think what's so interesting when you're a small entity like us, there's that ability to build connections between corporate and Mm -hmm. the stores in this case and have a very fluid conversation, very open dialogue. And I think the question is, for a large corporation, how do you build that kind of connectivity so there's not this, you know, stores versus corporate situation? So I think that, you know, that's probably one lesson learned from us. I think from uh, learning from Walmart perspective, I think they've done an incredible job, actually, um, around Black Lives Matter, about putting money where their mouth is with the formation of the Racial Equity Institute and the amount of money they have put towards a long term commitment to solving so many of the systemic issues that we face in this country around racial equity. And I think you know, many brands during the summer of 2020 were trying to figure out what to do. And I think Walmart made an incredibly good move by showing a very long-term serious financial commitment to create real change that I think given their scale in the in the country, they're going to be really able to make an impact there. And I think the lesson for us is how do you create consistency around that and not have it be something that you do for Black History Month, something that you do for gay pride, et cetera. And I think, you know, that is definitely a lesson I took away from the way they reacted to that moment in time. One thing I've just found remarkable is, you know, when we last spoke before the pandemic, you just talked about how they were a terrific partner or I guess you know, yeah. owner of you, of your company. And you know the, everything that's happened in the last few years. You have you have been bonobos. You've taken a stand on a lot of issues, and yeah. your purpose is to create a world where we all fit in, which is a lovely expression and a lovely philosophy. And I just think they have let you be you. Yeah. And at least from my perspective. So, can you go into that a little a little bit more deeply? 
it's because it's a good lesson for other large companies who own high growth, founder-led, purpose-centric companies to let them be who they are because that's why they're successful and that's why they're attracting people and customers. So could you just go into yeah. that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so the way it really works for us is we set an annual operating plan and a strategy and I discuss that with the leadership at Walmart and then frankly as long as we're operating within those parameters we're left to deliver that strategy and to do it in a way that is consistent with our brand and our culture. And I think that um, in all of my conversations, whether it be with Doug McMillan or John Ferner, I think that they look at Bonobos and they see what we're creating from a brand perspective, from a product perspective, from an experience perspective. And I think that it's something that I hope and I believe that they're, they're proud of what we're doing because I think we are creating and continue to create a really special and magnetic brand with Bonobos. And it's been 14 years in the building um, it's 14 years old this year, and we're continuing to innovate and disrupt and, and push that agenda forward. And I think that I feel incredibly lucky that we get to continue to do that within an ownership structure such as Walmart. I mean, I think that so many retail brands like ourselves really struggled through the pandemic. Business was really tough for us for a year. You know, we're a where to work brand and no one was going to work. So we really struggled. And I think if it wasn't for, to some extent, the safe harbor of, of Walmart, and I say the safe harbor from a kind of protecting us financially from the ebbs and flows of last year, but also the safe harbor that has, as you say, enabled us to kind of flourish and grow as a brand over the last several years, things could have been very different. What sorts of things did they do during the pandemic when business kind of came to sort of a halt for so many brands and companies? I'm sure yours did slow down, as you just said. Was there more attention, less attention? I mean, kind of how, what was the relationship like in the early days of the pandemic with Walmart? I always felt really supported. I think that it was stressful, but it wasn't stressful because of Walmart. It was stressful because all of a sudden, you know, I had all of these employees in our guide shops with nowhere to go every day. And I think to my point about Safe Harbor, we were able to do two things with those employees. One, I was able to deploy some of them into customer service, into what we call Guides on Chat, and they continue to serve our customers through e-commerce through the duration of the pandemic. But then others um, were actually given the opportunity to go and work at their Walmart store if they wished to. So we were able to keep everybody gainfully employed through that period where we were shut for three months. And I think, you know, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of through the pandemic is that we were able to keep those store employees, you know, gainfully employed as they wanted to through that period of time. So I think to your question about, you know, were there more eyes on us or less? I think there were eyes all over the company because the business was challenged on so many different dimensions, not just Bonobos, but the whole business. I think that I felt very supported. People understood why the business was struggling. You know, we're also 40% of our businesses in tailored. So, so much of our business is in weddings. And I think it was you that told me that you or your son were wearing Bonobo suits to a wedding, no? Correct. Correct. Well, there weren't many weddings going on, let me no, tell you. Right. So I felt very supported. And it was those sort of practical things like employing our store staff that um, made a big difference, I think, to, to my team, definitely. Mickey, I have to ask you, does Doug McMillan, the Walmart CEO, does he wear Bonobos jeans, 
He wears pants. He definitely wears pants and shirts. I'm, I'm working on a suit for him. Very good. You know, I met him when he was just named Sam's Club CEO. I don't know. He was in his early 30s, I think, at that time. I was still at P&G. And when he was appointed, I, I spent a day with him. I went down with the P&G team, and I spent a full day with him in the new job. And even back then, I just thought, this guy is so smart, so yes. kind, so thoughtful, so inclusive, uh, with a clear point of view about the business and the culture. So I really thought this guy's going somewhere, and, and he has. He did. <laughs> you were right. You've already referred to you know, people stopped going to work when the pandemic hit. We're now in this crazy situation of hybrid working, and yep. I, I don't know what you guys are doing right now, but I did my first on-site visit with a client last week since March 2020. Oh, wow. And it felt so weird to pack for business again, to put put on the right kind of clothing, yep. and to not just turn on my screen and start talking, to actually go somewhere and meet people and have dinner with them the night before. It was really weird. So I'd like you, and you have a front seat right now, yeah. what's going on with the work world. Can you tell me what are people buying now? What are they wearing is the yeah. hybrid thing changing? So give us a little bit of your view of the future. Where is this all going and how's it going to influence how people buy and dress? So I think that this hybrid working situation is here to stay, certainly amongst the demographic of customers that we serve who are you know, very much in white collar jobs. That is clear. We just ran a survey actually to ask people, you know, how it broke down. Um, and the vast majority um, are going to be working hybrid for the foreseeable future slash forever, whatever that means. I think what that means for us in terms of how people are going to dress, there's definitely a desire that people do want to get a little bit more dressed, even if they're at home. So the I just want to wear jogging bottoms and a T-shirt era is somewhat behind us. And we are seeing that people are looking to jeans um, and chinos as a slightly more kind of dressed up version, but still kind of comfy at home. And anything that's got stretch in it seems to be continuing to grow and perform for us. And then on the top, much like yourself, um, they are looking to actually put a button-down shirt on again. And yes, they want it stretchy and they want it comfortable and cozy and all of those things, but actually they want to have a collar on their shirt again because they want to feel a little bit more dressed up. So I think that's one thing that we're seeing. But another thing that we're seeing, we were just talking about weddings, is my goodness me, I don't I feel like everybody's getting married. Well, of course, they're not everybody's getting married, but there's so many pent up weddings that we would traditionally see the wedding season end for us from a shopping perspective in the sort of July, August timeframe. We expect to see it continue all the way through the end of the year. And we're actually expecting that the wedding season next year will be exponentially longer as well. And what we're seeing is that there's two extremes to weddings now. There's the tuxedo end of the spectrum that has really picked up for us. But also we're seeing, you know, a much more casual approach to weddings. You know, I think it's because people are having a lot of parties and maybe they got married officially during the pandemic with a small group and they're just having a party with friends now. But we're seeing those two ends of the spectrum happening, tuxedos and then the sort of what I would have called historically sort of the beach wedding dress, you know, sort of a casual shirt and, and a pair of chinos. Even shorts, would you believe it? Mm. 
And I would say shorts is actually, shorts is fascinating to me because shorts is something that completely accelerated through COVID and continues to be now a year round business and a much bigger business. And I think that's this um, at home. You know, you can wear a pair of shorts with a button down. Maybe you're wearing a pair of shorts now. I am wearing a pair of shorts with my bonobo shirt right now. And for our listeners, I'm wearing a bonobo (laughs) shirt with watermelons on it. Which is a signature look of ours. Yeah, I know that. I know that. Well, I am, as you say, I I have worn shorts to more dress-up events. I'm in California, but I put a sport coat on, a nice shirt, a pair of shorts, and some slip-ons. It's a nice look. It's a really, really good look. But I think what's interesting is that we actually launched some short suits a couple of years ago. Those did not do so well for us. That seems like it's a bridge too far for our guy. Yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. All right. I want to flip into your career paths because it is one of the most interesting of all the guests I've had on this show. You started at Cambridge with a degree in modern and medieval literature before a pretty storied career in marketing with tours through L'Oreal, Kellogg's, eBay, Trulia, joining Bonobos five years ago. I'd like you to share why marketing after your degree. Was it intentional? Was it serendipity? Was it you just needed a job? So tell us that story. (laughs) Much like I say that I'm an accidental CEO now, I do think that marketing was a happy accident for me. Um, When I graduated from Cambridge with French and Spanish, I was like, I'll go into an international business, thinking this is the way that I would keep my languages alive, and found myself at L'Oreal, um, thinking I would speak a bunch of French. I didn't speak any. Um, and I found myself in a rotation program. And the first three months I did market research, absolutely loved it. And after three months, they plucked me out of the management training program and said, here, there's um, there's this job running hair colorants for Garnier. We'd like you to go and do that. So I sort of fell into that role. And from there on out, stayed in marketing until three years ago when I became the CEO of Bonobos, but it was a happy accident. I think, you know, you can rationalize anything in hindsight, can't you? But um, when I think about why I have loved my career in marketing, I think it's because it's art meets science. And it's also all about understanding people. And I love people. And I love understanding what makes them tick, what motivates them, what inspires them, what galvanizes them into action. And so I've probably always loved those things, but I didn't know it before I jumped in. Of all those experiences, Mickey, which one of them was most defining for you on your leadership journey leading up to Bonobos? Which of those was, was uh, a torture test, an experience that really stretched you? 
So I think that, you know, defining moments, going to work at eBay. Um, I started with eBay in the UK um, in a brand marketing role. They wanted me to take them into TV, radio, you know, all of the classic tools of the CPG tool belt back then. Um, and it was defining for a number of reasons. One, it was the role that brought me to here to the US that was defining on a personal level. Um, I think it was also defining because the role I came to the US to take was to run a project called eBay 3.0, which was really about how do we, 10 years into the journey of the brand, really reinvent the brand for the future. And there was I, you know, in my early 30s, running a project with the great and the good of eBay back in the day, um, Gary Briggs, um, was the CMO at the time. You probably know him, Jim. Sure do. Um, and it was the great and the good, that project. And it went from a small group nurturing a set of ideas all the way through to presenting it to Pierre Omidyar, who was the founder of eBay. And then it went to presenting it to 13,000 employees across the globe. So I think from a leadership perspective, the reason I would say it was transformative for me was because it was about how you can take the power of telling a story internally and really use that to drive action and drive change that in the end will benefit the customer. But it was really about the power of storytelling internally across the globe. And I think that that's a lesson I have taken with me is how you have to tell stories that appeal to the head and the heart in an organization in order to drive action and drive change. I think it ultimately, you know, to your question about torture test, <laughs> um, one of the most challenging things about that whole journey was actually trying to create change in an organization of 13,000 employees that is, you know, at that point, an 11-year-old company publicly traded is also incredibly hard. So you can nurture an idea, a little baby, if you like, of an idea and a strategy. Making it happen is is really hard work. <laughs> so also a bit of a torture test too, in terms of trying to get your dream to become a reality. One of your superpowers, which we're going to talk about later, uh, is winning others over from the yes. strength finders assessment. So we're going to get into that a little bit later in the podcast, but I'd like you to reflect on that strength a bit following that story in eBay. What is it about how you win over others that enabled you to engage them in this story and help them feel like it's theirs and not yours. I obviously think it's probably the English accent first and foremost. <laughs> that does help. <laughs> I do think that um, something about the English accent here in the US is a, is a benefit. It certainly makes people sit up and pay attention. They perk up. Yes, they do. It's a little bit like the story from earlier in my career where I went for an interview and they thought that Mickey O'Brien, which is my maiden name, they thought that a man was going to walk in. And then I walked in and they were so taken aback. I think it gave me the upper hand in the interview. <laughs> That's a <laughs> well separate done. story. Separate story. Anyway, I think, you know, winning others over, where does it come from? And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's about knowing your audience. I mean, this is a trait of a great marketer anyway, but you have to know your audience internally. You have to know where the hot buttons are. You need to know who's operating with head first, who's operating with heart first, and you need to craft a narrative that connects those two things, the head and the heart, so that you can really connect with the audience and understand 
you know, what it is that they're looking for in a strategy and what it is that they're thinking about and what's top of mind for them. So I think it really, that's it, first and foremost. You were at Bonobos for about two years as CMO before becoming CEO. And, yeah. and that's rare. Not many CMOs become CEOs. It's happening a bit more frequently now, but it's still rare. So could you tell us that story? How did it happen? How was that decision made? How were you told about it? Was this an aspiration of yours or not? Absolutely not an aspiration of mine, which is why I say I'm the accidental CEO. Um, How did it happen? I mean, I'd been the CMO for a year, um, about six months when the acquisition happened, and I, I carried on as the CMO for another six months after that. And then Andy, the founder and CEO at the time, was taking on a broader remit within Walmart, and he asked me to essentially together with another gentleman called Brad Andrews, sort of run the business together for him. So I became a co-president and I ran all of go-to-market. I was sort of a chief customer officer, if you like. So I ran all of e-commerce and our guide shops, customer service, marketing, et cetera, everything except for the product, the clothing piece of the business. So that I did for about another year. And then One day I went to talk to Andy and I said, you know, look, I love working with Brad. He's great. We're like the yin and the yang um, of any kind of good relationship. We complement each other perfectly, but I'm not sure the team is clear where the buck stops. And as a result, I'm not sure we're moving quickly enough in a market that's moving very quickly and where everyone's trying to disrupt you every minute of the day. I mean, much like any other category. And I think we need to move faster. And he said to me, okay, I think, I think you're ready. And I was like, well, for mm. what? He said, I think you're ready to become the CEO. And I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure that um, I was ready. I wasn't sure the organization was in a place that, you know, somebody who'd come from the outside of apparel um, was ready for. But I decided that you get, you get a shot to take somebody's baby, um, which was, you know, Andy handing me bonobos. And if I didn't try... I would never know. Um, And so I took it on um, and it's been an incredible journey and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything that's happened in the last three years, pandemic and all, um, because I think it's probably been the greatest learning experience of my career today. And I'm not sure it will ever be matched again, to be honest with you. That's a big statement. Well, becoming a CEO for the first time in an industry where you're not the expert you know, I'd never done apparel before at a time when apparel was so challenged in a brand that stands to your point around in, around inclusivity and diversity, this idea of creating a world where we all fit, when there's a social movement happening, you kind of got it all going yeah. on. And I'm not sure that that storm will ever happen again. I don't know if I have the energy for it again, if it yeah. all happens again, to be honest with you, Jim. How are you different as a leader now than two years ago, going through, having gone through all of this? Two years ago, three years ago, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, nobody gives you a job description when you become CEO. It's interesting because they give you one when you become the CMO. But when you become the CEO, nobody gives you a job description. I had no idea what I was doing, and it was very much day by day. So now I know what I don't know. And as a result, I'm able to build a team that plays to my blind spots. And I think we've built an incredible team over the last three years. And I'm able to say, I don't know. 
but this person over here will. So I think there's that and comes with that is a lot more confidence um, in being able to say yes or no and make make decisions and make informed decisions or know when your decisions are intuitive or not and not informed actually. So I think that's probably the biggest shift. I think the pandemic and the social movement of 2020, how those changed me, I think that they gave me permission, more permission than ever probably to be really vulnerable um, and to say, this is this terrifies me or I don't understand this or you tell me. Um, and I think that, I don't know about you, but sort of as I sort of grew up in my career, I always thought the CEO had the answer to everything and that they had to be stalwart and they had to be the rock. And actually what I've learned is that the team really appreciates it when I have a moment of vulnerability and weakness. I think it um, makes them feel like they're in the rowboat with you and vice versa. And I think that has also changed. And there's a confidence to be vulnerable and that it's okay. Um, that is really powerful. There's a lot of advice in what you just said for CMOs who do aspire to be CEOs, and those, there are those out there. Is there other advice you'd have, Mickey, a few years into it now for CMOs out there who would like to run a company, would like to be, be a CEO? What would be your you know, top pieces of advice, tips to them? So I think that you know, earlier on in my career, I because I started in packaged goods, you know, when packaged goods, and you know this, Jim, when you think about marketing as a packaged goods person, you think about marketing with a capital M, as I like to call it. You don't think about marketing communications. You think about the customer. You think about the total experience. You think about the P&L. And so I think my advice is for any marketer, no matter how they kind of grown up through the marketing sort of journey is to really be that person who's thinking about marketing with a capital M, lead with the customer, think about the end-to-end -end experience, and honestly agitate for change if you think it's um, in favor of the customer and in service of the brand in part of the organization that you don't own. And I think that that often happens in digital companies where the marketer who's who's thinking big picture is like the product needs to be fixed. Certainly this happened to me. Um, the product needs to be this way. It's not delivering the brand promise because it's not doing X, Y, Z. And I think that, you know, you have to agitate for change. You have to be the champion of the customer, the champion of the brand, and you have to drive change if it's in service of delivering the brand experience. So that probably made me a total pain in the backside <laughs> for many of my colleagues throughout my career. But I think it was because that was the mindset that I always had was a customer-driven mindset around the end-to-end -end experience. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I've heard you say one of your favorite books is Discover Your Strengths, which is, you know, an amazing book. It's been a bestseller for many, many, many years. And in your Strength Finders assessment, which we've already talked about a bit, there were five areas that popped out. 
as your strengths. One was positivity, communication, strategic thinking, activator, and winning others over. And I'd like you to reflect a bit about having done that assessment, how has that helped you evolve as a leader? So the main premise of the book is that you should play to your strengths and not spend time and energy trying to be something that you're not. And I think that there's a degree, here we go again, of confidence and Mm -hmm. comfort um, that says, it's okay, this is who I am. I don't have to be all things. I can't be all things. And so there's a confidence that comes with that, I think, and accepting that. And honestly, around building teams that play to your strengths or play to your blind spots. I will tell you that my CFO, COO, who is very much my right hand, I think that of my top five strengths, three of them are in his bottom three. You know, and so for me, it's really helped me understand who I am, how to play to my strengths, and honestly, how to build a team around it. So you leverage strength finders in your in building the team and understanding the team and how you work. Yeah. So every single person at Bonobos, um, including our store associates, has taken it. It is the language of the company by which we think about teams, by which we give feedback to each other. So my team will often say to me, um, your activator is in overdrive. Now, activator is you want to get stuff done. So sometimes, and in fact, I was with a colleague this morning and he was telling me about some challenges and all of a sudden I could find myself rushing to a solution. And I was like, oh my goodness, Adam, my activator's in total overdrive. Hang on a minute. You tell me what you think some of the solutions are. So I think it brings with it a language of self-awareness as well as a language of feedback. And the CFO, COO, who I just mentioned, he has learner in his top five. It means he's incredibly detail-oriented. He wants to know the ins and outs of every single thing. He wants to ask a million questions. And sometimes I have to say to him, David, your learner's in overdrive. We just have to make a decision and move on. So I think it's become for us a vernacular, if you like, within the organization that I think is incredibly positive because it says that everybody feels like they're winning as opposed to feeling defeated and trying to be something that they're not. Oh, it's consistent with your purpose, right? Yes, totally consistent with the purpose. It is. And I think that, you know, We've probably talked about this before too. You know, I've always believed that living on the inside, it shows on the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said to someone the other day, you know, the walls are thin. So you're right in the sense that we have to live by this mission of creating a world where we all fit. And that has many, many dimensions to it, not just, you know, gender or race, but to your point, perspectives and ways of working and, and ways of being. Of those five strengths, Which one, I know this is hard, but which one have you leaned on the most as CEO? Positivity. (laughs) So it wasn't so hard to pick. Wasn't so hard. And because communication and strategic are obviously important, but I think that, you know, particularly over the last couple of years, believing that, you know, we will turn this business around, that we we will be able to serve the customer as we want to, that we will pivot and innovate has been really important. And if I think if you ask my team, they would probably say that that is the one that they have appreciated the most. 
Um, certainly, as people have left the organisation over the last year, and I've received notes from people, it's definitely been the one that's been called out the most often. And I think it energises people, and I think it's infectious. You also actively leverage advisors much yes. more than most CEOs and CMOs that I've met. And they include Andy Dunn, the co-founder. Uh, and you correct me if I'm off here, but I think I've heard you say this. You have an executive coach. Yep. You, re you really tap into your leadership team as advisors. Yep. Uh, you're part of the Women's Leadership Network chief. And you actually talk to your husband about things and get, <laughs> and get his perspective. So I would like you to share with us, is there one really tough challenge or issue where that group was especially helpful for you? Well, I might have to think about this one for a second. Because I think they've all played different parts in different situations. Um, I'll tell you what it was. I think, you know, I don't want to make this all about the pandemic, but it's obviously extremely top of mind um, for all of us still. I think in April of 2020, when we had closed the stores, when the business seemed to so, show no signs of life, um, I actually was like, maybe I'm not up to this challenge. Maybe this is not the role that I should be in right now. And I remember turning to them all in different ways with different kinds of questions around, frankly, how to not just turn the business around, but turn my frame of mind around and say, could I be the kind of leader that could lead us out of this or not? Or did it have to actually be somebody else? And I think that, you know, my husband was probably a cheerleader in that situation. I would say that my chief, my women's group of women CEOs were super practical. You know, they're all operating CEOs and they helped me think through frameworks to say, how are we going to figure out this business? I think the leadership team were right in it there with me in terms of making decisions honestly, day by day, as well as week by week. And then Kristen, who's my coach, was almost like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like a safety blanket, someone that I could retreat to and be super vulnerable with about, about all of it. So they all played different roles. But I think that, you know, that first month where I was like, am I really going to be able to turn this thing around? Am I going to be able to keep people in a job? Is this ever going to end? You know, it was a real crisis of confidence for me. I feel like I'm talking about confidence a lot today. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a real crisis of confidence. And I think that they were sources of strength in, in different ways. Why were you questioning yourself getting through this and being the right one to lead? Was it your personal energy? Was it you didn't think you maybe had the capabilities for this situation? What, what was it? I mean, I don't think any of us really had the capabilities for the situation, but I definitely, I definitely at the time thought, gosh, I have never experienced anything like this. Um, so there was definitely a capabilities question in my mind. Um, I think it was also emotional. Um, you know, I have three small children. Um, they were five, eight, nine at the time, homeschooled um, with no childcare support um, and to working parents. There was definitely, you know, a sort of managing of your physical and emotional energy going on 
for many of us, but as a working mom of three small children, oh, and don't forget the puppy. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I physically can do this too. And I know many, many people experience the same thing. Um, and I think that going back to my support network, the executive team were amazing at that time because actually I was the one with the youngest children um, homeschooling. Not all of them have children and my CFO, COO doesn't have children. And he definitely stepped in for me when it was just physically not possible for me to do something. Um, and I think that, you know, my coach was the one who always reminded me to be kind to myself. Um, and that many of us, myself included, were managing uh, multiple things simultaneously. So I think it's a great question, Jim. I think it was probably a little bit of capabilities, a bit of imposter syndrome probably mm -hmm. going on there, mm -hmm. as well as the sort of emotional and physical energy of what um, what I was experiencing at the time. How, how did you, I know we're, we're kind of tired of talking about the pandemic, I get it, but yours is a very, it's a special case. How did you keep yourself well, you know, but you had a puppy that I, I, I understand wasn't sleeping much and you have kids. And how did you keep yourself fresh and creative yes. and positive in this time? And have, has any of that carried forward to this day? Any, any new habits or rituals? I wish I could say that I had become that CEO that got up at four o'clock in the morning, worked out and, you know, drank a green juice. I am not that person. <laughs> I wish I was. But I will tell you that um, a bike ride or a walk is a tonic for the soul for me. Um, when I'm here in the city in Brooklyn, um, I will often hop on a city bike and just go for 20 minute buzz around the park. And it's amazing how much sort of fresh air and physical exercise can sort of unlock a funk or a kind of a a dead end in your thinking. Um, or, you know, if I'm upstate, you know, we're lucky enough to live in the middle of the woods. Um, and I do think there's something about walking along the creek in the woods that is really refreshing for me. So I definitely try and take time out to do to do that. Um, and then this is going to sound funny, but something that we started to do as a family during COVID was over dinner every day, we do roses, buds and thorns. Do you know what that is? Keep going. A rose is the thing that you're most grateful that yeah. happened in your day. The thorn is the thing that was the most painful. And bud is something that you're looking forward to. Oh. And, you know, we started doing it with our children um, to try and remind ourselves of the good things that were happening in a day when often we didn't leave each other's side for a day. But that is actually a ritual that we do over dinner still. And obviously, my husband and I are often sharing things that happened during our work day um, with the children. The children are sharing, obviously, what happened at school or in the playground. But I think it is a ritual that has helped us um, focus and say, actually, every day something good does happen. And there's always something to look forward to. There's always a bud, even in when it, on the days when it feels like there was nothing but thorns. Last question about leadership before moving into the creative brief. You seem to be very in touch with your organization. It's come up several times in our chat today. And you even take on anonymous questions. Yep. I'd like you to talk about that a bit. Uh, what, what are the most challenging issues your organization is raising, anonymous or not? Yep. How do you stay in touch as a CEO? What sorts of things do you leverage? 
And what do you, what I think people would be interested to hear what's on people's mind right now. Everyone's trying to mm. figure out how we work now and how yeah. we stay creative and inspired. So in terms of how do I stay in touch, there's a few things. We do a company all hands every week. And you know, one of the things I love about Zoom is it's a much more level playing field. So when we were in the office, I would stand in the front of a room and talk to 200 people. And obviously the people at the back, I couldn't see their face. But now I can flick through the screens on Zoom and I can say, hey, James, hey, Danielle, hey, whoever, and have a conversation with them, um, which has been incredibly impactful. The other thing um, that we instituted for new hires is something called Know Your CEO. So if you're new to the company, in fact, I did one of these today with three new hires, we just sit down for 45 minutes. I give them my story. I ask them theirs. And you start to build a personal connection with them. And I think that those two things have created personal connections between me and the team that have created a spirit of um, transparency and honest communication that then when it comes to anonymous questions, I tend to just get straight shooting questions. There have been times when there's a real tone to them, um, but for the most part, they're really constructive questions. In terms of the kinds of questions that we're getting these days, Honestly, a lot of it is around the great resignation of 2021, which we keep reading about and people asking me, what's my perspective on it and how am I going to stop it happening and how are we going to hire and how are we going to build culture when we're remote with you know, a large number of new employees? Those are the questions that I get first and foremost. You know, Fortunately, business is in a really good spot right now. So I don't get questions around that anymore. Um, it's really about the people challenges that I think all leaders are facing right now as we exit the pandemic and we see so many people thinking about their careers or their lifestyles or their geography or whatever it might be that's causing them to reassess and, and often resign and move on to postures new. So what do you say when they ask you about the great resignation of 2021? Because again, this is one that none of us have lived through before. None of us have lived through it before. Maybe this makes me a classic marketer. But when this came up, you know, when I started to feel how real it was maybe six or seven weeks ago, um, it was actually when one of our very earliest employees left and she has gone traveling. She's doing an eat, pray, love. And I'm very excited for her. But it was it was a it really hit home for me what was going on with her departure. So I did a classic marketing thing as I, I did my own little survey. I took the list of every single person that resigned and I had spoken to them all because I speak to everybody. And um, I'd spoken to them all and I basically bucketed them into, you know, different reasons for leaving and figured that there's some I can't do anything about. You know, somebody deciding to go travel the world, someone saying, I want to go, you know, live in Europe. I can't do anything about that. I can't do anything if someone says, you know, I've decided I want to become a teacher or I'm going to have a complete career pivot. There's nothing I can do about that. The ones that I can try and resolve are people who feel that they've got sort of itchy feet and they're not growing as much as they 
want to or they feel like they can, or people who honestly are just a bit exhausted and need something fresh. They need a fresh challenge, almost like a reboot, which I completely understand, by the way. And then I think for them, what we have done recently is we have moved a lot of people, probably eight to 10 people into completely different departments within the organization. And we win because we get the institutional knowledge that they bring from one part of the organization. They win because they get a fresh challenge. And we win another way, which is we get this kind of cross-pollination and collaboration happening across the company that is a source of strength for the organization go forwards. So I don't have all the answers, but what felt very overwhelming breaking it down into the, what are the things that I can change and what are the things I can't? And then what, this is my activator now in overdrive. And then what are the plans that I can put in place to try and resolve some of the challenges that people are feeling around career development and freshness? That's something I can do something about. And then the others, I just have to say, you know, send me a great photograph of you by Lake Como or wherever it is you're going. That, that that was a terrific lesson in leadership right there, Mickey. I mean, you, first of all, you listened. You focused on what's in your control. You had some creativity in helping people reboot themselves. And, and you did it with a, sort of a plan. So, that, you know, I, I find a lot of leaders right now are a bit stuck in the headlights about what's going on. And I think what you just offered was a way to approach it that I think would apply to anyone. So thank you for that. My pleasure. It's hard. Yeah. It's really yes. hard. Yes, yes. But, <laughs> but you, you're, uh, I mean, you, you have a great plan. Listen, I want to move into the creative brief because I want, I want to, I yeah. this, is a good, this is a good section with someone like yourself. First one is you're always on the lookout for great service brands. So I want to know who you're admiring these days. From a service perspective, um, do you know the one that really springs to mind based on a recent experience is Airbnb? I'm a host as well as a an avid traveler, and I think that they service them both equally well. I think obviously from a traveler perspective, sort of the ease of use and being able to get access to places to stay and experiences is amazing. But I'll tell you as a host, they make it incredibly easy to host. If there's a problem, they are brilliant and very um, timely around resolving it. And I think they've managed to balance that marketplace incredibly, incredibly well. What English idiom have you used with your team that has baffled them the most? <laughs> oh, gosh, I feel like I do this all the time. I feel like you should be asking them that. Um, bonkers. I say bonkers a lot. Do you even know what that means? Yeah, generally. I've been around enough Brits. people. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do say this is bonkers a lot for anything that seems like it, unbelievable or yeah. crazy in some way. And it's usually bonkers good, to be honest. It can be bonkers bad, though, too, right? It can, yeah. but... I think the place I've most recently used it is actually talking about service um, in looking at one of the responses that one of our new customer service reps had given to a customer. And it was funny and it was helpful and it was in the spirit of the brand. And she's been with us two weeks. And I was like, this is bonkers good. 
<laughs> so now they use it. Positivity is a strength of yours. What are you most positive about now? Within the business? Yeah, business and general. I feel like there's a real um, atmosphere of change happening in the world in general right now. I think that, you know, as we exit COVID, I think there is this sort of ideal of a fresh start um, and a new era and a sort of new dawn. And I think that is just change. I think that's obviously related in some to some extent with you know, the pandemic to some extent with politics here in the US. But I feel like there's this sort of air of positivity and appetite for change generally that is in the air right now that makes me excited and frankly excited for my for my children and for the next generation, whether that's around social change, environmental change, leadership change, change in the way that we interact with each other in a more human way. There seems to be less of a tolerance. Maybe I live in a bubble. In fact, I'm sure I do live in a bubble, but less of a tolerance for bad behavior that I find incredibly encouraging. How about in your business? What are you positive about? I guess some of those things as well. I mean, some of those things as well. Um, I'm really excited about how the team is continuing to innovate. You know, when when business is hard, which it was, I think it's very easy to sort of get sort of down on yourself um, and get a little bit deer in the headlights, as you were just talking about. And I think I'm incredibly proud of and excited about how all of those challenges presented an opportunity for the team to innovate and disrupt themselves. And, you know, we made some great launches, um, you know, earlier this year, and we have more stuff coming for next year that... I think it's directly a product of that forcing function um, of the last year and a half that forced everybody to innovate and change faster than ever. But that's my pride. That's my moment of pride. All right. Last word to you, Mickey. This has been such a fabulous chat. Anything for me before we sign off? No, it's just so lovely to spend a bit more time with you, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for wearing your watermelon shirt. <laughs> I love it. I get so okay, many good. compliments on this, by the way. Every time I wear it, people remark about it. I love that. Are you a gin and tonic or a pina colada drinker? Oh, definitely gin and tonic, not pina colada. I'm going to have to dig out a gin and tonic shirt to send you. That would be on brand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a gin and tonic drinker too. So there we go. That makes two of us. All right, Mickey. Thanks again. All my absolute pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Mickey Onverall. Three takeaways from this one to apply to your business and life. The first one, have a positive outlook. Mickey talked about how it's so appreciated by her organization that she keeps a positive outlook about the company, the future, the organization. This is one of her strengths from Strength Finders, and she really leverages it in her role today. Second takeaway, how to stay in touch with your organization. This CEO does it about as well as anyone I've met. Her weekly meetings, she meets new hires to hear their story and she shares her story. She talks to people who are leaving the company. She tries to keep the ones who are on the fence. She is a role model for being in touch with your organization. Third takeaway, think of vulnerability as a strength. Brene Brown, the famous researcher, speaker, has done a lot of work on vulnerability and what that means to effective leaders. I think this case we had today 
of Mickey talking about her vulnerability, how it's helped her be a better CMO and a better CEO was very powerful. You don't need to know about everything. Mickey talked about how when she became CEO, she kind of thought CEOs seemed to be confident, know about everything. She found it very helpful to go in learning, to go in vulnerable, and to not feel like she needs to have all the answers. A bonus takeaway, I loved her family ritual where every night at dinner, they talk about what they're grateful for, that's the rose, some pain point, which is a thorn, and something they're hopeful about and looking forward to, that's the bud. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.